Uh, For last week, we were looking at how the church had to determine how to serve its own members in a godly way. As we saw, there was this great program for feeding uh, widows who didn't have financial support. People sold their goods, they gave it to the apostles, the apostles distributed it among the poor and the needy in the church. Then the There was a problem with the program. There was sort of an ethnic divide between two different types of Jews and certain widows were actually being neglected. And so the church had to get together and say, how are we going to fix this? And they chose seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit to take care of this specific group of widows so that everyone would be treated equally in the church. Uh, This was the process of choosing deacons, people who would take care of the practical matters in the church, no less spirit-filled than elders, Um, and yet just a different type of role. And so we talked about that last week, and if you're interested in serving in practical ways, um, then why don't you just go ahead and take a listen to that message, and also come next week, because we have a great service next week all about partnering in the gospel here at Evergreen. But that aside, one of the men who were chosen, uh, his name was Stephen, and he features prominently, he's the first one mentioned, and then he features prominently in the next half and full chapter in Acts. Luke does that to get our attention, to say, now one of the seven men, his name was Stephen, uh, but he was unique. The other six were probably equally qualified and gifted at doing the job that Stephen was doing. But Stephen, he wants to point out and say, Stephen's going to have a bit of a more major role here in the book of Acts. We notice that he was spiritually mature and he was competent for what? Serving tables. Distributing to the needs of the saints, to help make sure everyone was taken care of. It's a wonderful task in the church. And his faithfulness in that task translates here in the text to a deeper and more prominent responsibility. He goes on to face opposition outside of the church, and then he goes on to preach a very lengthy sermon. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, I do cafe. I hope nobody calls on me to preach a big sermon next week. And, you know, that's not necessarily how it always works. But in Stephen's case, he was called upon to go toe-to-toe with the opposition to God's kingdom. And that's instructive for Stephen. It's instructive for us because this narrative illustrates a larger model wherein our understanding is that the reality of the Christian church is, is at the same time caring for and building and establishing the city of God, God's kingdom, and at once contending and coming up against opposition outside or in the city of man. That's what's going on here. That's why these texts are just bumped up right against each other. On the one hand, they are serving tables, and in the next moment, we have a clash between the city of God and the city of man. And that's really where my first heading begins we have Stephen, who is his, the antecedent mention of him is obviously up in verse uh, 5 in chapter 6. They chose Stephen, and then down in verse 8, and Stephen, this same character, who is full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. I don't think that's referring to how he spooned chili into a bowl. All right? like that was what he was doing, but God had also gifted him in other ways. As we said last week, sometimes our spiritual gift is quite ordinary looking. It does not make it not a spiritual gift, but just sometimes it looks ordinary. Sometimes it looks 
a little bit more extraordinary or a little bit more even potentially miraculous or supernatural. But Stephen clearly gifted in both. He had great management skills. He had great oversight over um, the food distribution, but also he had been given grace and power through the Holy Spirit, and he was doing great signs and wonders. Now, remember, in Acts chapter 2, Peter was talking about the Holy Spirit coming to the church, right? And people said, these men are drunk. And Peter said, no, this is not drunkenness. This is what, this speaking is what God promised back in the book of Joel, that he was in these latter days going to pour out his spirit and sons and daughters would prophesy and old men would dream dreams and I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. This was the promise. And so Peter's saying, this is the time of signs and wonders taking place on the earth to vindicate and validate the message of the apostles, right? Jesus came and did signs and especially John picks up on this. He picks seven major signs to say the words that Jesus was teaching were corroborated. They were certified by the work that he was doing because he said to the people if you don't believe my words then at least believe my miracles at least believe the works that i do and stephen was given this grace and power from the holy spirit to do signs and wonders among the people and some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen challenged him and they rose up and so i want you to see this connection between the inward management of the church and outward ministry this is important I spoke last week about how the witness and the, the right dealing of the church inside the church is an incredibly powerful witness. The way we serve each other, the way we put on a potluck dinner, the way we care for a new mom with a baby and cook meals for them, the way we shovel each other's driveways, the way we clean each other's toilets when we need help, the way we actually operate in the simple, weird, everyday, ordinary things in life is a witness because we are the city of God. We are God's people. And so we as a community become a witness in the way we operate. But there's a connection there to outward ministry. It's not just let's make sure we have a great social club because the work that we actually do allows the church to propagate. Remember, at the end of this, when they solved this food problem, in verse 7 in chapter 6, it says, The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So when you take care of the meal program well and the preaching of God's word continues, then the church thrives. There's an amazing connection between doing church well together as a community and the increase of the mission of God, the kingdom of God. And so one week, they're trying to figure out how to feed these widows in the city of God. And the next week, they're contending against opposition from the city of man. And I believe that the reality here is that when the church lives faithfully as the city of God, she, being the church, will find friction and discomfort from nearby expressions of the city of man. We are always integrated in and among people of the world. That's how it's designed. Scripture says that we are in the world, but not of the world. We are intentionally by God left among the people, the city of man, the kingdom of Satan, for the purpose of mission, for the purpose of expansion of God's kingdom. Now, Jesus put it another way. He said, you will be like a city on a hill, and you will be like a lamp on a lampstand. 
Do not cover it. And what was he saying when he talked about being a light and a salt and a city? In that particular moment, he was talking about good works. He wasn't talking about um, gospel proclamation, the prophetic, the prophetic witness. He was talking about good works at that time, which corresponds to what the church is doing here with widows. He said, let your light shine, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so again, the city of God is not just a, a group of people who agree on doctrine together. It's not just people with the same beliefs. It's people whose good works work together as a witness to being that city on a hill. And so this is what's going on here in the book of Acts. There is good works that translate to witness into the world. Stephen actually embodies this reality particularly. Like in and of himself, he is an embodiment of this reality because he, as I said, on, on the one hand, he's serving coffee to widows. He's making sure that the tables are being met. And he's also doing signs and wonders and he ends up preaching and evangelizing before the Jews. He has this really fantastic and dynamic ministry. Have you ever met people in ministry that they seem to be able to do everything well? It's like, oh, I wish I was like that. Well, we're not all like that. Okay, so if there are things that you're not good at and you think, well, I'm not scriptural Christian, Stephen's, I think, a little bit of an exception. Even the apostles said, you know, when, they, when people told them there's tables that are being missed, the apostles were like, well, that's not our job. <laughs> we preach. And in the same way, I think I really relate to that when people say, you know, there's work to be done. I say, well, I'm not good at everything. I'm very good at very few things. Stephen is this unique embodiment of the reality that, he, that we need to take care of the church well in practical ways. And also, our prophetic and outward ministry must connect to that. And so Stephen is found being challenged as a result of his witness and as a result of the faithfulness that he displayed inside the church. Now, this is also fascinating about this passage is that there's an almost fluid interchange. As we go through the book of Acts, there's this fluid interchange between opportunity and crisis. Now, I use the word crisis in quotes because from our perspective, things might seem critical and emergency, but Nothing is outside of God's reach, out of God's sovereignty. But from our perspective, you know, one minute it's like, oh, we have an opportunity to serve these widows a little bit better. We have an opportunity to do something positive and exciting. And then the next moment there is what we might consider crisis, where somebody is captured, they're imprisoned, uh, they're opposed, they are ridiculed, they lose their job, they're ostracized. There's some crisis as a result of the ministry. And the church just kind of honestly lives in this tension all through its life. It's kind of like being on a boat and just making sure your knees are bent. Because whether it rocks to the right or the left, you've got to be ready. And so this is what's happening in the church. They're not mutually exclusive. There are seasons where we build up and we defend. And there are times where we must tear down and contend I think it's in the book of Jude. It's like sometimes we proclaim and build and sometimes we contend and we tear down. In, the, in Corinthians, it says that we tear down lofty ideas raised against the knowledge of Christ. And at other times, we are building up the church and we are building up those who are 
seeking the Lord. And so the church just really lives in this awkward tension sometimes. And that's not a bad thing. And, and sometimes, and I think I've been feeling this lately, is that it just, when things seem disjointed or chaotic, it's actually just, that's the call of the church. That's the call of the Christian. I wish it were just much more straightforward and simple where it's like, either I'm just going to be this hardcore soldier all the time or I get to be this like, um, you know, peacemaking kind of guru-ish, you know, come into my quiet office and let me give you godly advice kind of life. It, but it's, it's, we, it's not that simple, especially in families, right? If, if you're a growing family or if you have teenagers or grown-up kids, it's like, you look for those opportunities to build up and to shepherd and nurture, and then there are times where you need to act decisively and make uh, sever ties or protect, right? And it's all part of the mind of Christ that we are given, and, and, it, and it's just the reality that we live in. It's the calling of the Christian church to undertake, but it's done with the help and companionship of the Holy Spirit. Let me just remind you of that. We have to go back to that command from Christ when he said, don't go out and do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Because we are not called to live this life through our own mere logic or perception or skills. It's about the Spirit guiding us through those difficult and often chaotic times. And so the church here, you've got widows inside and their bellies are full, which is great, but then you've got one of those table waiters going out and facing the authorities. And in fact, at the end of his sermon, he gets executed. How traumatic for the church, right? These widows finally have a guy that they can count on who's taking care of them well, one of the seven, and then they find out after one of the sermons he preached in the street, he got killed and only six come back. I mean, this is traumatic for the church. And yet Christ is with his church and his spirit is with the church and so the emphasis that I want to make there is that the church just really lives in this reality that we as the city of God are constantly bordering the city of man. And this interacting continually takes place. And that's where growth happens. That's where the kingdom is proclaimed. And that's where a transformation takes place. Now, what happens? The bold print at the, at the top of my next heading is irrational opposition. So Stephen, as he's doing these signs and wonders among the people, this is probably taken to mean just the church. He's doing it among the church. So Stephen attracts the negative attention from particular Jews. Now remember that the problem here was with the Hellenist widows. The Hellenist widows were being neglected. And so the Hellenist Jews came to the apostles and said, our, you know, our background, the Hellenist Jews, the ones who speak Greek or some other language, they're being neglected. And interestingly, Stephen is chosen from among those people to take care of them. And then when he gets up to do signs and wonders, the opposition against him also comes from that same ethnic group. Uh, Connie read for us that people who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians and of the Alexandrians, and from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. These are all Jews from outside of the Hebraic or the, the, the ethnic uh, Judaism of 
Israel. Meaning, these were Jews who feared God, but were from outside of Jerusalem originally. Some had synagogue, in, uh, some of them had been taken captive in Rome and they had been freed. And so they spoke languages other than Hebrew or Aramaic. And so in some senses, the Jews would have maybe looked down on them and made them second-class Jews because they didn't you know, speak that pure language of, of Hebrew. But these are the Jews who come up and oppose Stephen. All these synagogues and from, from places outside of Jerusalem. Now, I find that interesting because it's Stephen. He gets opposition from those who understand him and know him the best. Jesus, I think... Put it another way when he said a prophet is not unwelcome except in his own hometown. To me, that just really struck me that Stephen, the people who get up and get against him are the ones who speak his language and know him the best. They know his background. And they say, we can take this guy down. We know him. You know, he doesn't really know what he's talking about or he doesn't really have the right to speak on that. And often we're going to find the most opposition from those who know us best. I think that's just sort of one of the plain expectations of Scripture. It's easy to go proclaim Christ and to call people to faith where you don't know them. But when people know your life and they know your family and they know your background, you know, when Jesus came and preached, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? We know his mother and his father. How can this be the son of God? And so when Stephen stands up, it's his own kinsmen. It's his own ethnic people who say, Stephen, let's go silence this guy. And they go up to challenge him. They engage informal debate. Now it says that they argued with him, but this is more like a formal debate. And so they want to challenge his ideas. They want to challenge his uh, worldview here. And the reason is that they want, to, they want to cloud or confuse Stephen's message. That's what this is all about. If they can destabilize the messenger, if they can knock him off his confidence, off of his game, if they can sort of cloud his proclamation of Christ, then they can, they can retain their ground. They can hold down their turf, right? And so they debate him. They want to cloud the clarity of the message of Christ, with, with, which Stephen was witnessing to it with these wonders. Judaism, we already learned, as a whole had rejected Christ with the help of Pontius Pilate. Peter had made this painfully known to them. He called them out. He said, you rejected this cornerstone And we see that this rejection is filtering right through to smaller branches of the same faith, to these other synagogues. It was like Christ is not our Messiah. And so those who proclaim him, we are going to argue with. We're going to try to stop them. We're going to try to hold the line and say, this is not where Christ is proclaimed. This is not where Christ has reigned. Now they're arguing with Stephen because they have rejected Christ. They're not arguing with Stephen because they find his theology a little bit off or his eschatology is a little wonky. They are debating and arguing with Stephen because they refuse to bow to their king. They refuse to submit to Christ. That's the reason why they're on the outside of the church. They're on the outside of the church coming up in contact with people from the church and saying, your message is not welcome Now, how did they do in this debate? Verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Right here, we have sort of a theological and symbolic clash between the rebellion against Christ and his everlasting and expanding kingdom. 
It's both physically taking place, but this is also emblematic of the clash between those who, who reject Jesus Christ and Christ himself. At times, the church may seem like it's on its back or it's in retreat. And yet Christ is never on retreat. He is never drawing back. Um, my family motto in Latin for the name Tyson, I don't know how to say it in Latin, but the translation of it is, uh, not to progress is to retreat. And I, I think Christ would be the one to whom we can credit that in the first place because he is not neutrally standing there hoping to move forward. He, as he is speaking through the Holy Spirit in his servant Stephen, is not allowing this opposition to withstand it. There's another translation that says that they could not cope with the wisdom with which he spoke. He spoke with such grace and such power that, that, that their argument against him was just literally disintegrating and falling at his feet. They could not withstand the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Here's what we need to understand about that is that their problem is not understanding. It's idolatry. They could not cope with the wisdom with which he spoke, which means that every objection they raised to Jesus Christ, he crushed. He crushed. He dissolved. He, in the words of Paul, he was tearing down every idea raised against Christ. He was tearing down, tearing down, tearing down. And says they could not cope with it. But what happens? Do they bow and repent and receive Christ? Verse 11, it says, They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Their problem is idolatry. They idolize their faith. They idolize their religion in Moses and the prophets and the law. This is exactly what Christ dealt with in his ministry, isn't it? He said to them, you know, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life, but Moses testifies about me. Do you know what books Moses wrote? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books that Moses wrote. Jesus said, those books testify about me. That's why I can't wait for the next three or four weeks when we're going to go through Stephen's sermon because he's going to show us how the whole Old Testament points toward Jesus Christ. So the problem is that they idolize their control. They idolize a religion that serves them. They like having a religion that they can understand and put into practice, but they do not like when the God of that religion comes to them face to face. They like a religion where God is far off on the mountain. They do not like when Moses comes down from the mountain with his face shining. They do not like when God clothes himself in flesh and comes among them. They don't like that because he challenges their idolatry, their self-proclaiming, self-exalting religion. There were many good God-fearing Jews, many, who came to Christ and received their king. But the sad part is that the leaders of Judaism themselves said, we will not give up our pride and prestige. We will not give up our fancy royal robes and lay them at the feet of Christ. 
So the interesting thing here to notice, just, and this, how this applies to people, is that your beliefs, what you believe about Jesus, about we sang this morning, I believe in the virgin birth, I believe in the saints' communion, you know, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in the resurrection from the dead and the return of Christ. Those, believing those things do not make you a Christian. Your faith is not the sum total of your beliefs, meaning that you gathered all the Christian data and said, well, I, I approve of all of this, so that must make me a Christian. Rather, your faith is the bedrock. Your faith is the soil out of which come your particular beliefs about Christ and about his church and about the scriptures. Meaning that your faith is not just purely rational. You don't just get the data and say, well, that makes the most sense. I think I'll become a Christian. That's not how it works. Those things are important and and our faith goes through our minds and our minds agree with our faith. Faith is not irrational, but faith is actually supernatural in its origin. You are a Christian because God has broken down your pride. He has broken down your idolatry. He has broken down your self-confidence. Not self-confidence. We are confident in Christ, but he has broken down our self-assurance saying, I can do it without God. And he has granted us faith. He has granted us repentance from our sin and he has made us a child. And because of that work, we are Christians and we proclaim and defend the faith in all of its particulars. Because these men were presented with probably one of the best sermons and apologetics for Christ that have ever been made in history. Stephen was full of the spirit and power as he spoke and they could not cope with his wisdom. But they were not transformed because of their idolatry. You cannot rationally force somebody into belief in Jesus Christ. You can present them with the gospel, but God must transform them. God must transform them. So interestingly, what what happens when you're speaking with somebody about Christ, and maybe it's pretty heated, and maybe it feels a little bit personal, but what happens when that person who's rejecting Christ comes to the end of their logic? They come to the end of their rational rejection of Christ. Very often you'll find a bait and a switch where they want to argue rationally, but when rationality is overcome by the truth of the gospel, when their rejection of Christ no longer makes logical sense, there's a switch. It's called bait and switch. And then they secretly instigate men, so they change tactic. They make Stephen go from being their opponent in a debate, like a scholar, they turn him into a criminal. It's easier to deal with Stephen if he's a criminal than if he's a scholar because we can't answer him according to his wisdom and so we need to actually deal with him just as a criminal. Does that sound familiar? Jesus Christ himself. They couldn't withstand his claims, his his threat to the authority of the Jewish leaders. They could not stand his claims to be the Son of God And so they make him a criminal. And even the criminal system, though it could not find anything wrong in its corruption, still saw the death of Jesus Christ. But essentially, this is how opposition has to work. When one remains against Jesus Christ, you've got to change the way you see the Christian. You've got to to change the way you assess them. And so they, they bring charges against him. We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. Hmm, Jesus was also accused of blasphemy. 
And they stirred up people and elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness against him who said, uh, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place being the temple and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and he will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so that's their charge, right? Similar claims that Christ made. He said, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they accused him of not obeying the law when, when, um, when, they did th- when he healed on the Sabbath and Jesus said to them, well, look, David ate consecrated bread on the Sabbath. Does that make him a criminal? And what he was showing was that in, in him is fulfilled the law. And so rather than altering the law, Moses' law was fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so they switched tactics. Did you see that? They switched tactics. At once they're debating the validity of Jesus Christ, they switch from that to going and attacking the ministry of Stephen personally and his own personal record, his own personal uh, interactions or, or sermons or whatever it was he was doing. Now, this has the appearance of success for man. This has the appearance of the church having to retreat, having to capitulate, having to suffer, having to move away from the realm of success. But in, but in reality, it's the strength of God. It is the advance of the kingdom of Christ. That we have to recognize, that by appearances, very often the kingdom of man, the kingdom of Satan, appears to have success. It appears to have influence. It appears to have dominion. But in reality, the kingdom of Christ has full dominion. And only as a matter of time is it before Christ fully reigns over every enemy. And so he's seized and he's brought before them, but this is by no means a failure of the church or diminishment of Christ's lordship. There is actually the victory of truth. We're going to stop this morning before we get to his sermon. But we can see even taking place in these moments up leading to the sermon, we can see the, the onset of the victory of truth. Now, why is that? Because in secrecy do they stir up the people. Deceptively, they set up false witnesses. There was a total neglect and ignorance toward the law of God here. What they want to do is incite and stir up popular backlash against Stephen. Again, they couldn't cope with his wisdom, so what do they need to do? They need to turn the public perception against him. They need to obfuscate and cloud and diminish the witness of Stephen uh, through whatever means necessary, and they set up false witnesses to create accusations against Stephen. This, these are the methods of deception, underhandedness, that Paul later condemns. Now, we're about to be introduced to the character of Saul, who later becomes Paul, but we know Paul in the New Testament. He wrote most of the books in the New Testament. And there's a passage that he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.2 where he says that we renounce and denounce underhanded, manipulative means of spreading the gospel. In other words, we as a church, we refuse to do the things that are crafty and deceptive and secretive. Our ministry will not be categorized in those ways or characterized. That is even more profound when you recognize that after Stephen is stoned, 
there's one young man standing there giving approval to his execution, and it's Saul. Saul himself once participated in these dirty tactics to, to silence Christ and to silence the witness of the church. He was there giving approval to his execution after these false witnesses had been set up, after this deceptive instigation had been incited against him. Once Paul became a Christian, he realized this is not the way Christ is going to advance his kingdom. It's not going to be through lying. It's not going to be through deception. It's not going to be through secrecy. It's going to be through public, clear, honest proclamation of the truth and faithfulness to God. That's how his kingdom is going to advance. It's also fascinating to realize that as these men stood up and said, he's threatening to alter the law of Moses and he's threatening this holy place. They are in fact lying and seeking the injustice that they claim to be upholding. I find this a great parallel to the world that we live in today, which is that the way the debate is framed Whoever wins the framing of the debate often wins the debate. Right now, the way the debate is framed against the Christian church is that we are intolerant, unloving, rigid, exclusive, and people outside the church are truly loving, truly just, truly seek. I mean, we see all this biblical language seeping back into public discourse, right? Like, justice and equality and kindness and love and companionship, all the things that we would say, yeah, God's all about those things. And yet, it's the community who's in rebellion against Christ who are using those things to say, oh, Christians aren't even acting like real Christians. Like, I think it was Lady Gaga who said, um, you know, regarding Mike Pence and his wife, and it's not a political statement, but she essentially said, they're not acting like real Christians. That's, Christ would never do that. And it's like when you win the framing of the argument, you get to categorize people any way that you want. And that's where we need to truly examine the life and the obedience towards God's law. And, and, and again, it's easy for Christians to get on their back foot and say, well, you're right. Isn't God all about love? Well, what kind of love is it? What kind of love is it? And that's why we have his word. We're not left up to just our imaginations about how God would apply his law and his love. But these men cannot be said to be speaking for God because they are disobeying God's law at the outset. They're lying. They're bearing false witness. They're setting up an innocent man to be killed. There's no justice there. There's no no truth there. There's no um, restitution there. This is not... God's work, and they claim to be defending the so-called holy place. Jesus said about that holy place that it would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And what he was saying was, this holy place is now going to be my body. The place where men used to come and meet God in the temple, Jesus said, now men are going to come and meet God in me. I will be the temple from now on. And so again, this is, this is the clarity of the rejection of Christ. You, you do not have the favor and presence of God without Jesus Christ. Even though the Jews were saying, hey, we still have the temple. You know, we still have the gift shop. We still have the toll booths. We still have control over God. And God made a clear statement against that in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was sieged. There was an, there was an end to the Judaic system of worship, the temple. 
Christ said to the disciples, this mountain will be moved into the sea. He was speaking of the temple mount in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. Christ alone is the fulfillment and the path forward of the law of God. He is, he is the righteousness of God for men and women. And as they reject him and, they, and they, they claim that Stephen in his sin of blasphemy should be judged, whereas what they are missing out on is justification. They are still in their sin because they think that the temple is holy rather than Christ is holy. They believe that the law itself is holy or the pages of scripture are holy or that Moses himself was holy rather than Christ to which all of those things spoke. They masked their idolatry in the language of biblical preservation. They wanted to see Moses and the law preserved. Again, the same very thing was done to Jesus Christ. They attacked him on the false basis that he was dishonoring God. They claimed that Jesus was a blasphemer. They claimed that he was altering God's law and ignoring God's law. But what Jesus said to them was that you don't realize that Moses and the prophets longed to see my day. Moses was looking for me. Don't tell me that Moses is on your side when you tell me that I'm a blasphemer because Moses was looking for me when he wrote and when he lived. As I said, they want to preserve a system in which they are in control. And the reality for our present day is that Jesus Christ is no longer welcome in the public square because he lays total claim to it. He lays total claim to sexuality. He lays total claim to the law. He lays total claim to government. He lays total claim to economics. He lays total claim to education. He lays total claim to the family. He is king over everything, which is why there was such a desperate attempt to throw every evidence of Christianity overboard from the public sphere. Because when we rid this place of the king, we can set up our own kingdom. That's why the name of Christ is so unwelcome in the public square today, because he lays claim to it. Jesus does not get along well with those who claim to be sovereign. If the state wants to be the highest authority in the land, Jesus says, I will not tolerate. I will not share my glory. I will not share my throne. This is why Christians in Rome had a difficult time. Rome was a very tolerant, pluralistic, multicultural community. They said you can practice any religion you want in the Roman Empire as long as you confessed that the highest authority, the Lord of the land, was Caesar. And Christians said, we can pay taxes to Caesar, we can follow your laws, we can be obedient, but we will not confess Caesar as our Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that Rome could not tolerate because Rome saw itself as theistic. Rome saw itself as the highest authority, as the transcendent divinity of the world. They were God on earth. That's what's happening today. As Christ is pushed out, the state becomes more and more proclaiming itself to be the transcendent authority, the highest authority to which any man should answer. Saying, this is holy. This is the holy place. And what we miss out on if we do not proclaim Christ as Lord is that he is the answer. He is the righteousness through which men can be made right with God. 
Amazingly, Jesus, when he was confronted in John chapter 5 by people making these exact type of accusations, he said to them, your approval means nothing to me because God's love is not in you. I'm not seeking your approval. Do you want, do you want a line? Do you want a line to just keep in your pocket and you know that Christ himself said it first? He said, your approval means nothing to me since the love of God is not within you. Friends, as we live faithfully to the message of the gospel, your message will not always be welcomed. It will seldom be welcomed. We will be told we are intolerant. We will be told we are unfairly exclusive. We, are, we will be told that we are proud. All kinds of baiting and switching is going to happen all the time. People say they want to engage your ideas. And as soon as you speak about the Lordship of Christ, they will say, well, you're a bigot. Now you're this. Now you're that. There's a bait and switch and you will be accused. And your response should be, your approval means nothing to me for you do not have the love of God within you. John chapter 5. The approval of God is what we seek. Now, what happens? They gaze at him and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The reality is that as they thrash and as they gnash their teeth and as they accuse him, we saw in the trial of Jesus, the priest tore his robes. There's such anger when Christ is proclaimed. But like Judaism then and like utopianism now, utopianism being the sort of secular idea of the kingdom of total peace and where everyone's happy and everyone's fulfilled. It's the secular counterfeit to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Like Judaism then and utopianism now, their goals are going to be unfulfilled. They're not going to see the realization of the kingdom. Judaism was a very well-established and influential reality. They had the temple, they had the customs, they had influence in, in the society. But God put an end to that because it was not rooted in the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Roman Empire, the Lord put an end to that because it was not rooted in the lordship of Jesus Christ. So utopian goals, all kingdom goals that are counterfeit to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, they will be brought to an end. Their goals will remain unrealized. Although they kill Stephen, they do not make any, any advancement in terms of a kingdom. When you reject the king who has the power to redeem and renew and restore man to God, then you fail to help man reach his full potential. Mankind, all men, women, and children, their full purpose in this world is to be made right with God. And that is through redemption of Jesus Christ. And in that, we see the transforming power of the kingdom. So they look at Stephen. And he is the face like the face of an angel. What does that exactly mean? Um, well, he's full of the Holy Spirit. And so he's not worried about the false accusations. Um, he knows his Savior, so he's calm. He knows the Word, so he's ready. And he trusts in God, so he's unconcerned. He's unconcerned with the future. He's unconcerned even with the outcome of this day. He's about to preach a very long and intense sermon. A very long. He's about to speak on the history of Judaism to the Jewish leaders. 
If I was preaching that message, I don't think I would have the face of an angel. I, I would have the face of wrinkled anxiety, probably. But Stephen is standing there in the face of opposition and saying, the kingdom of God is advancing. And my Savior Jesus Christ is at work and whatever these men do to me or do not do to me will not alter the end result in Jesus Christ. So I love Stephen. Stephen is just this fantastic, faithful guy serving tables one minute and the next minute he's in front after being arrested of the authorities and being charged with all this false accusation. And I think what he realizes is that when Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world, because if it was, my people would rise up and fight. When Peter pulled the sword out and cut off the servant's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus healed the servant's ear. Because the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not going to take place through burning people at the stake who don't believe, putting people in prison who are not belonging to Jesus Christ, through instigating wars against pagan nations. That's not how God's kingdom is going to be built. It's a kingdom that's not from this world, which means that the way it advances is not through conventional means. Stephen recognizes all that, and that's why he is so confident. He's like, you can arrest me, you can stone me, you can do whatever, but this kingdom is going to advance because even if I die... The church is still at work. And friends, one day we will all pass on and Lord willing, the church will continue on and the witness of the Lordship of Christ in Smith Falls will continue long after we are all passed on if the Lord waits. And so we have this guy who's like, he's calm and ready. He's ready to give witness to Jesus Christ. And the reality there is that when we are faithful as the city of God, to take care of each other and to bind together one another in our community, we will also serve as a witness to the kingdom of man. In everything from food distribution to proclamation of God's word, he is at work to build his kingdom and to make his name known among the lost. 